So let me start with, uh, with a question as we continue this Sermon on the Mount series. Hello, Adam. Uh, here's, the, here's the question. Uh, has, has anyone ever had a really high opinion of you? Now, I hope everyone in the room can say yes to that. I really do. And, and if not, you'd need more encouraging people in your life. But uh, hopefully someone's had a really high opinion of you at some point. Let me ask a second question. Has anyone ever had an opinion of you that is so high you're almost certain it's not accurate? Uh, my wife, Abby, once wrote this about me on Facebook. She said that I am the smartest, wisest, most passionate, caring, hilarious, loving, godly man she knows. Those are so kind. Those words are so kind. They're also not true, like in any way, shape, or form. I'm not the ist of any of those things. I know the same people she knows, and I can list all the ist people, and none of them, none of them are me. So those words aren't true, but coming from, from someone that I admire, someone I care so deeply about, someone I love so much, it makes me want them to be true. Those words give me something to aspire to. As we continue this series on the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to hear words from Jesus that are those types of words. They're words to aspire to. They're words about who we're supposed to be, even if we aren't yet. For context, the Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And throughout this teaching, it's one long teaching of Jesus, and throughout this teaching, he challenges our understanding of what it means to reflect God's character in the world. He says things like, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven. We may think of heaven as God's space. There's here and then there's heaven. Heaven is God's space where his will is all that's done all the time. And here's a very different place. But Jesus is announcing in the Sermon on the Mount, that the veil between God's space and our space has grown indistinguishably thin. Every part of his teaching is announcing and inaugurating that something heavenly is happening here. Now, we can look around at the world and, and say, look, I, this does not look that much like heaven to me. And in a sense, we would be absolutely right. But Jesus, over and over again, if you, if you listen to the space in between his words, I think you'll hear Jesus saying, look again. I had the privilege in the last few years of my grandfather's life to live just a couple of miles away from him. I've talked about my grandfather before. He's a great man, a great hero to me. Uh, he was a World War II veteran. He owned his own high-end gentleman's clothing store when he returned from the war. He always had a can of palmade and a, and a comb in his pocket ready to make his hair look perfect. He was an urban gardener. He canned his own food. He made his own instruments. He was a hipster before hipsters even, even knew what hipsters were. Like He was a cool <laughs> guy, and I loved uh, being around him. And so in his last years, Abby and I and Caleb, who was an infant at the time, would go over and have meals and share time and look at pictures and tell stories with my grandparents. And I would also usually mow their grass. He, he wasn't physically able to do that. My grandmother shouldn't have been physically able to do that, even though she tried. And so I would try to mow the grass for them. And this week, it had rained a ton, and the grass was really tall, and I wasn't looking forward to it. But I fire up the mower, and I, I feel a hand on my shoulder. I turn around. It's my grandfather. And so I turn the mower off, and he says, hey, uh, don't, don't cut down the flowers. And I thought maybe, maybe he was having a, a moment or something because he had these beautiful plant beds, these flower beds. But of course, I wouldn't mow over them uh, because they were marked out so, so cleanly. But he wasn't pointing at the flower beds. He was pointing at the middle of the grass. And the only response I could muster at the time was, the weeds? You don't want me to cut the weeds? And he, and he looked at me with all seriousness. He said, no, 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 those aren't weeds. Those are wildflowers. 
He goes, I don't know how many more times I'm going to get to see those. Don't cut them down. And I was going to mow right over them. He was inviting me to look again. See, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' announcement that this world isn't a weed, it's a wildflower. And it's worth saving. And it's worth pursuing beauty and goodness in. And so with this context, Jesus turns to the people that had gathered on a hillside to hear him speak. And they hadn't done anything miraculous. This is important to know. They hadn't done anything all that special. They just showed up to hear Jesus speak. But showing up to hear Jesus speak always has the chance to be the beginning of a miracle. And Jesus says these words. It's in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 13. It's in your bulletin. If you've got your Bible, open that up. If you've got an app, feel free to look at that. Or just, just listen along. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus gives us two pictures of who we're supposed to be in a world that's worth saving, salt and light. And my hope is that as we unpack those two words, those two things he says we are, that we'll see a couple of things. One, that pursuing justice is the way that we are salt and light. And also, we pursue justice by choosing the boldness of love. So justice is how we are salt and light in the world, and we pursue justice by the boldness of love, by choosing the boldness of love. So salt and light, these are two very distinctive things. They're things that get noticed. They definitely got noticed in Jesus' day, and to a lesser or greater extent still get noticed today. There are two things that get noticed when they're present, and they get noticed when they're not present as well. One ancient writer said of salt, he said, salt... They said the world cannot endure without salt. Salt is essential to survival. Well, why is that? Well, you got to put yourself back in in Jesus' time. This is before refrigeration, before food could be shipped and and stored and cared for, and and we could have pretty much any food we want in any season we want. So in ancient days, in Jesus' day, salt helped preserve food. It helped it from spoiling. It helped it from going bad. It preserved the goodness of the food, but it also improved things as well. I mean, imagine movie theater popcorn without salt, gross. Movie theater popcorn with salt, delicious, right? So it improves things as well. It preserves, but it also improves. So I think if Jesus was saying this today and we were gathered on a hillside and hearing him speak, I think he would say something like, you are the bacon of the world, right? Because we all know that bacon makes everything better. Uh, it improves any food. You know, green beans without bacon, kind of fine. Green beans with bacon, that's pretty awesome, right? And so we know that, that it improves things, except he was Jewish and no pigs and so but you get the idea. He would say something like that. Salt's intended to bring the best out of things. So Jesus, when he says, you are the salt of the world, he says we're called not just to preserve a way of living, but to bring out the best, the potential goodness in things. And if we don't, if salt loses its saltiness, as Jesus says, the only comparison I can think of here is, is, is like water losing its wetness. If salt loses its saltiness, it's no longer what it should be, and it's also indistinguishable from the things around it. It's like taking a small salt packet and walking out to a heavily traveled dirt road and just tossing, you know, emptying the salt packet out, and it gets trampled, and you can't even see it anymore. It's indistinguishable from everything else 
around it. In the same way, light helps bring out the best in things. It helps people see where they're meant to go. But if light doesn't shine, it can't be distinguished from darkness and it stops being what it was intended to be. So I think more than anything else, with these two things, what Jesus is telling us is that we're supposed to be distinctive. We're supposed to stand out. We're supposed to be, we're supposed to be noticed. But distinctive and standing out and getting noticed for what? We're to be noticed for how we seek justice for others. Let me explain. And to do so, we have to go all the way back to the beginning of the scriptures. In Genesis chapter 1, it says, People are unique in all of creation because we're made in the image of God. Here's what this means. It means people are made in his image, so all people have dignity. You don't have to give someone dignity. They already have dignity because they are image bearers of God. And so they should be treated with honor and love, and we should work together to move God's good creation forward and bring out the best in each other. That's how things are supposed to work. It says so in the first chapter of the Bible. And that sounds good. It sounds right. We're like, yeah, I'll sign up for that. But the problem is we don't often see that in the world. And the reason is is because we as people tend to put ourselves above others. The Bible, if you look at the Old Testament and you read through it, it actually shows the progression of this, this personal putting ourselves above others. It takes root. And once it takes root, it spreads to families. And then it spreads to communities. And then it spreads to societies. And the Bible has a word for that. It's called injustice. It looks like people, particularly the weaker people, being left out at best and taken advantage of at worst. And so in a biblical sense, it's unjust to treat anyone as less than yourself because we're all co-image bearers of God. And the Bible describes this condition as being rasha, in the wrong. And so there are really only two options of who we are and how we live according to the scriptures. We are either rasha, we are in the wrong because we don't seek the best for others, whether we do wrong to people or we leave what is right undone for people, we're rasha, we're in the wrong. So we're either that or we're about justice. We're about bringing the best out of things. We're salt and light. And we often think of, of justice simply as, as making sure those that do wrong get punished. And, and there is a sense of that in, in justice. We see that uh, in the scriptures a lot, but that's only part of what justice is. Justice is so much more than that. In the biblical sense, justice is leveling the playing field. Seeing every person as an image bearer of God and therefore worth pursuing their goodness for God's sake. Worth pursuing what God intended for them for God's sake. And this pursuing justice like this, this way of pursuing justice will be distinctive. It will be like salt and like because so often people, including us, aren't all that interested in leveling the playing field. Again, our problem is that we tend to put ourselves above others, and there are examples of it all, all around. I actually came across a couple examples recently to, 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 to bring these, these, this point to, to light. There are a few things that I've seen recently that is, that is not people uh, being the light of the world. So let me share a couple of those with you. Um, have you ever been on Netflix? You, you turn Netflix on, and, uh, and for a few seconds, you're actually looking for something to watch. But pretty quickly, something changes because you go to the trending now thing, and it's like this is like you're, like Netflix is trying to help you go, like, this is important for you to know. And you see Princess Diaries 2 on there, and you think, uh, at first, why is that up there? Because I don't watch things like Princess Diaries 2. And then the second, the very next thing you think is, wait a second, 
I don't see my favorite movies on trending now. What's wrong with the Netflix community? So you change from looking, to some, looking for something that you actually want to watch to actually just looking up movies you already own to see if Netflix agrees that they should be trending now. And you're feverishly looking through, like, where is Rounders? Because that's the best movie of all time. And Matt Damon was exquisite in that movie. Like, where is Rounders? Princess Diaries 2 up, but no Rounders. And you get mad at the Netflix community because they don't know what's good. And you get so upset about it that the next day you come into the office and you uh, have an hour-long conversation with with someone, let's call him Dave, about why is Princess Diaries 2 trending, but Rounders isn't. That does not make you the light of the world. Let me give another example. Maybe you're driving down the road and, uh, and you would like to help someone understand how to drive better. As you're driving, someone needs some instruction, and so you begin giving them that instruction that they need, uh, but you're, you're driving at different paces, and so they're, they're moving away more quickly you know, than you are, and your windows are up and their windows are up, but you're still going to bark those instructions. That does not make you the light of the world. Maybe you're an avid cyclist and you, uh, you're pedaling your little heart out on the Kadeway Trail between uh, Forsyth and Cimarron uh, 7.30 in the morning two Mondays ago. And, uh, <laughs> and you're just going to town and you're feeling good about yourself because you've got your full-on replica race jersey, U.S. Postal Service Tour de France, like regalia. You got the whole thing going on and you are just going to town. And you happen upon two runners. Well, let's say one runner and one person that's accompanying a runner because this person's wife decided to run a marathon and uh, this other person, uh, let's call him Gary, decided to run with his wife, uh, but mostly it's just suffering through the whole thing. And so you're taking up, uh, you know, you're pedaling along and you see these runners that are taking up 17% of the trail as they kind of like hobble along in the 8,000 degree weather. By the way, back to the, the full-on uniform thing. Uh, th this is a point that needs to be made. Uh, like, that's normal. Like, I could go to the store and buy a Michael Jordan jersey and shorts and Jordan 3s and show up at the park and be like, let's ball, and everybody be like, yeah, that guy's awesome. No, it's weird. Okay, but anyway, so you pedal along, and um, you've got 83% of the trail, but you know what? You're going so fast, it's like I can't be slowed down by these people, and I'm kind of coming off a corner kind of hot, and so you nearly clip the guy that's basically suffering through the run, and you give a token. After you're past them, you're like already zooming past. You go on your left, right? Okay, a couple of things. Your uh, dedication to authenticity with your jersey does not make you the light of the world, and also your token on your left also does not make you the light of the world. One more, because this is helpful for me. It's like cathartic. Um, <laughs> say you're at the airport, and you're in an impossibly long line uh, um, going to whatever Midwestern town everybody else is going to, and, uh, but there's a general agreement at the airport. You all have to wait in the impossibly long line. Like, you don't get an option. This is how it works. But you're in this impossibly long line. You pull up, and you're like, wait a second. I have a better idea, and I can enlighten everyone in this place if I just walked around everybody else up to the front because... I have a way to make a new line. It's called cutting everybody else who's been waiting. That does not make you the light of the world either. Okay, I have done or experienced all of those things in the last three weeks. And they are bold. And they get noticed. But they aren't very loving. See, we live in a time that invites us to, to push people to the side if they stand in your way. Win an argument, even if it means losing the person. Push forward, push ahead, get your ideas, get yourself out there. That's the way of boldness over love. Boldness first. And we are invited into this way and sometimes choose this way because we're told that this way of putting ourselves above others is actually how we'll find happiness. That's what will allow us to be the people that we're supposed to be. But the social sciences are telling us that's dead wrong. I recently read a report 
uh, from a study that was conducted by a group called the Health Foundation. It was a study on millennials. And it said millennials are on track to be the first generation in U.S. history that has less health than their parents. So the subsequent generation is less healthy than the previous generation. And they came to this finding because they, they said that people in their 20s and 30s are struggling with core aspects of future health. It's not maybe that they're struggling right now, but aspects of future health they're, they're not kind of developing. They're struggling to obtain uh, the practical skills that are needed to pursue a career. But also, and these, these next couple are actually more interesting to me, people in their 20s and 30s are struggling to find the emotional support needed to navigate victories and, and failures. And they're struggling with the personal connections needed to guide decision-making through life. Less than 50% of those that were surveyed said, I have all three of those things. I have, I have practical skills, I have emotional support, I have personal connection. So, so what, what does that mean? Well, here's what I think it means. I think it means that people are choosing to go it alone. And we, no matter what generation we come from, aren't willing to help others through. And it's hurting us. A few days ago, we were getting Caleb set up before school started at Maitland Middle School. And we were in the library getting him a computer, which everything's digital now, which is crazy. And, uh, but there are all these signs on the, like motivational things on the wall in the library. And one of them really stuck out to me. And it said, it said this, it says, sometimes it's okay to take a step backwards and admit that you're being ridiculous, which I love for my middle schooler, but I think it's really good advice for us. This putting ourselves first is ridiculous. This study and a growing mountain of research is telling us the depth and quality of relationships and responsibility to a broader community, especially when you have to sacrifice for that community, that's where things like peace and health and joy are found. See, we can be bold in our opinions. We can be bold in defending our space. We can be bold in doing things our way. But if we choose boldness over love, we will miss being light. We'll miss what we're made for. See, Jesus, at the heart of what he's saying here is what we're supposed to be, what we're looking for, what fills us up is not blending in to a world that says choose boldness over love. No, what we're looking for, what fills us up is the boldness of love. Not boldness over love, the boldness of love. And not simply to prove our way is better, but to help people along who are struggling in the dark. This is what Paul, Paul wrote a lot of the, the, the latter half of the New Testament, a lot of letters after the Gospels, his letters to different churches. Paul wrote most of those that we find in the New Testament. And he wrote one letter to the church at Colossae. And in the fourth chapter of that, he uses some of the same imagery of Jesus. He puts it this way, be wise in the way you act. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversations always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. What Jesus is saying to us when he calls us salt and light, and what Paul is getting at here, is saying every single moment is full of the potential to live lives that people are curious about, that have a different flavor of love, that bring light into a world that is far too dark, far too often. And the first Christians got it. The first followers of Jesus, just a couple years after Jesus says these words on the hillside, the first followers of Jesus, they, they said, you know what? We, we want to aspire to this. We want to be salt and light. And they went after it and they surprised the most powerful empire the world had ever known, the Roman Empire, not by the, the power of their military. They didn't have one, not, not, be, not because of their powerful voice. They didn't really have any with their lives. 
They devoted themselves to acts of kindness. They loved their enemy. They forgave their persecutors. They cared for the poor. They fed the hungry. And they did it in the name of and in the power of Jesus. They loved people and they helped others see what was best for them. And it made them distinctive in a world around them that wasn't all that interested in it until they saw it. And Christianity began to explode across the known world because it's as good, it was as good as it, as it was new. And here's the deal, and I, and I hope we don't leave without believing this. If, 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 you, if you hear me say anything, hear me say this. It's not like the opportunity is now over. As though the change in time means a change in calling. God knew we'd be here. He knew we'd be right here, right now, in this culture with all of its complexities and all of its challenges, and the words haven't changed at all. The opportunity still exists for us to be salt and light, not with the loudest bullhorn, but with the boldest love. And when we see it, when we see someone choosing the boldness of love, it's still deeply impactful. I want to take a second and just read something that someone who goes here wrote recently. It's just an excerpt from it. Uh, she and her husband are sending their daughter to kindergarten, so they're sending their, their, their oldest to school for the first time. And she wrote a letter to the teacher. I want to read just a part of it. It says this, Dear kindergarten teacher, let me just start with, I really hope your summer was adventurous and relaxing and splendid. You so deserve it. Your work is full and tireless, and you fully deserve to be less tired. I hope this summer gave that to you and more. Now, for six hours a day, for five days a week, for 180 days, for the first time ever, my daughter will be yours. In one of life's most noteworthy baton exchanges between a parent and a kindergarten teacher, I am faithfully passing my precious child to you. You will be the one who wipes her tears when she gets a boo-boo. You will be the one who watches her imagination come to life. You will be the one who sings with her, reads with her, giggles with her. Please giggle with her. You will be the one who witnesses her newest little friendships. You will be the one who answers her questions and guides her choices and ensures her safety and expands her knowledge and holds her hand and reminds her to be kind. You, you are the newest member of our village, a pivotal chapter in her story. And you've got this, kindergarten teacher. This letter really got to me when I read it, and it could very well be because I was just a couple days away from sending my kids back to school, and that's kind of emotional because we'd had a lot of time together in the summer, and I knew I was going to miss them. That, that, that baby that I was telling you about that went to my grandparents' house, he's five years away from college, and that's been hitting us lately. So that could be it. It could be just you know parent-to-parent -parent thing, but I think it was something more than that. I think it's because when I read this letter, I thought, I bet that teacher needed that encouragement. And I bet they're nervous about starting a new school year and are they going to be good enough? Maybe they're sending their own kids to school and they're, they're upset or, and possibly nervous about that. Maybe, maybe something happened in the weeks leading up to, to school starting and they didn't get their classroom done in time and so they're frantically trying to get the classroom to look just perfect for those kindergartners when they come in and they're, and they're struggling to get that done. Maybe there's a new standard that they don't feel like they've mastered. And, and I bet all of that, if all of that exists, it could be pretty lonely and a little bit dark. And if that's the case, this letter was light. I mean, what would it look like for us to be intentional about speaking those types of words, those types of words that are good and right? See, sometimes it's a, it's a simply spoken 
bold, but simply spoken, simply kind words, simply kind act that reminds someone of what they're worth. It shines the brightest on a backdrop that's too dark. See, it's bold to offer forgiveness to someone who's wronged you. It's bold to seek inconvenience, unity, inconvenient unity with people that are from different backgrounds or different races than you in a, in a, in a world that likes to divide people up. It's bold to abstain from gossip in a, in a world that feeds on it. It's bold to put your cell phone down and look someone in the eye just to remind them that they matter to you. It's bold to be faithful to your spouse, not because it's easy, but because you said you would. It's bold to give to the needy when you could always just look out for number one, and it's bold to make space in your lives for people so that they can know who they should be. These things are distinctive. They're even curious in the way Jesus was. This way of being salt and light, intentionally and courageously taking on the needs of others, even if it costs you something, it isn't a convenient way. It isn't a common way. It's just better. And I know for some of you, when you heard that list or you heard that letter and, and those things, you, you, you had this kind of thing pop in your head. They were like, you know what? I could do all those things, but it's not like it's going to fix everything. Nope, it won't. Only Jesus can do that but they matter because they will fix some things. And if you're wondering if you're living that kind of life, the type of people are curious about because of how bold you are in love, if you're wondering if you're being salt and light, I think two questions will help begin to guide your understanding. If you're a note taker, this is your moment, uh, but, but I think it's these two questions. Am I speaking words that lead to hope for others? That's what Jesus' words did. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. Am I speaking words that lead to hope for others? And am I seeking to know and serve others for their benefit alone? That's what Jesus' life did. That won't answer every question. You won't have absolute and total clarity about everything if you answer these two questions. But if you want to know if you're being salt and light in the world, that's a good place to start. Because speaking words that are good and encouraging and lead to hope for others and seeking to serve others for their benefit alone, that's how we put the light of Jesus on display. That's what his words did and that's what his life did. And when Jesus says, you're the light of the world, a town built on a hill that cannot be hidden, it was a clear reference to Jerusalem. It was the center of worship for the Jewish people. See, Jerusalem was a, was a city built on a hill. It, 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 everything kind of looked up to it. it was supposed to be a beacon of hope for the world, and it contained the temple at the center of it. That was the place where, where the Jewish people worshipped in that day. And people would come and travel around and go see temples dedicated to gods to try and learn something about that God from all over the world. And so when Solomon, King Solomon, the Jewish king, 900 years before Jesus was born, when, when, it, when, the, when he dedicates that temple, he goes into this long prayer. And in this prayer, he says, he says, God, when people come and see this temple, because they will come and they will see it, God, hear their prayers. Listen to them so that they can know your goodness. That was the dedication of the temple, the city built on a hill. Jesus says, you're a city on a hill. You're supposed to be a beacon of hope to the world. And people will see you. Listen to them. Seek to love them so that they can know his goodness. Or as Jesus says it, let your good deeds shine before others so that they may know and glorify your Father in heaven. See, pursuing others' goodness for God's sake, which is pursuing justice, that's the way that we're salt and light. 
And the good deeds that result from that type of living are what prove the veil between God's space and our space can at times be indistinguishable. That heavenly things can happen here because Jesus said so. So if we choose the boldness of love, if we live curious lives, Jesus said people will be interested in the reason you live that way. So don't hide. Seek justice. Because being salt and light can't be that we turn into chameleons, that we just blend into the culture around us, the world around us, the environment around us, and just be completely undetectable and indistinguishable. It can't be that. And being salt and light actually can't be the far end of the other spectrum as well, bullying our way through life and worshiping our own opinions. That can't be being salt and light either. And it absolutely can't be hiding. Hiding from the darkness. I know there's so much going on in the world. I mean, if you, if you pull up your phone, you can look at the news right now. If you watch the news on TV, you'll see there's a lot going on in the world that's not all right. And we can have this response that says, you know what, I'm just going to bury my head in the sand and pray that God puts an end to it all soon. But that can't be the response. When my now 13-year-old that I've been talking about was four or five years old, he went through a little phase of being scared of the dark. And, uh, and he, so he'd ask for things like, can we keep the hall light on or can I keep my bedroom light on at night when I go to bed? But I wanted to help him work through the fear, not just acquiesce to it. And so, um, so, so we developed this little strategy at bedtime. And we've got a pretty intense bedtime strategy. There's, there's Bible reading and prayer and hugs and then another second round of it. It's pretty complex. But anyway, so at this point, one thing that we did was we'd turn the light off in the hallway. We'd turn the light off in his bedroom. And then we'd stand where there was still a little light and we'd look down the hallway toward his bedroom and I'd put my hand out um, and, I, and he'd stand beside me and put his hand out and we'd grab hands. I'd look at him and say, you ready? And they'd look at me and he's like, yeah, I'm ready. Are you ready? And I'm like, I think so. Um, and, uh, and then we'd run. We'd, I mean, we'd have to pick up some speed too. So we'd run down the hallway hand in hand and when we got to the threshold of his room, we would jump as, hard, like, as far as we could because we wanted to hit right in the center of the room if possible. He had to clean his room before this all because somebody would like break an angle. But anyway, so we'd boom and we'd land in the middle and then right when we landed, we'd yell, I'm not scared of you. And the darkness wasn't that much to fear. See, so it wasn't all that scary anymore. Light doesn't hide from darkness. And us being salt and light means we can't hide from the needs of the world. We can't hide from the people of this world. The Jewish Talmud, which is a commentary on the Old Testament, expanding on Micah 6.8, says this. Do not be daunted by the enormity of the world's grief. Do justly now. Love mercy now. Walk humbly now. You are not obligated to complete the work, but neither are you free to abandon it. Let me leave you with this. If you've looked at the world recently and said, you know what, it's too dark. There's too much pain, too much hurt. It's too dark. Look again. There are wildflowers of the kingdom everywhere. And if you looked at yourself recently and said, I'm not the ist, I'm not the smartest, I'm not the, I'm not the wisest, I'm not the, I'm not the most caring or lovely, I, 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 can't, I can't do it, I can't be salt and light. Jesus, I believe, is saying, look again. You're the salt of the earth. There is light in the world. It's you. God says we can be people who bring hope and joy and peace into this world.
there's light in the world, it's you. And he says, I choose you to be a part of that way. So be bold in how you love so that they'll praise your Father in heaven because it's his character and his kingdom that they'll be seeing if you do. As the 19th century poet and playwright Robert Browning once said, a person's reach should exceed their grasp because heaven is breaking in. That makes aspiring to be salt and light worth it. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the truth of your word in declaring us as salt and light. Thank you for the challenge of your word. God, I don't know about everybody else, but I know for me that's kind of a hard thing to believe that you would trust us with that responsibility, but also that you would believe in us to, to be that. So Father God, I pray that as we seek to be people who are bold in love, that seek justice for others, that level the playing field, that invite people up and invite people along and bring out the best in others together, I pray that we would not lose sight of the way in which we can do that. And it's one way and one way alone. It's not under our own strength. It's not under our own power. It's by you, by your grace that empowers us to be people who are salt and light. God, I pray that we don't try to do this alone because we will fail. And I pray that as we try to do it under your strength, we remember there is always grace. We pray this in the powerful and redemptive name of Jesus. Amen.